All right, so we are kind of winding down this uh, interim introduction of the book of Romans, and I, I do appreciate the, the, the bearing with me as I've worked my way through this, particularly the intention of this book. Um, I would say that uh, that, uh, that was to study that and look into these um, these precious gifts to the church who have mined so much out of scriptures and and what I've James as I've talked about this how these I love to read the guys from two or three or four hundred years ago because they were literally holding in their hands books and libraries from two and three and four hundred years ago from them Spurgeon for example if you ever listen to Spurgeon's exposition of the Psalms it is wondrous because he is reaching back 300 400 years from his day and um, the treasury of of David is what it's called and it's a massive four volume set um, and just wondrous um, and and I I think it helps us set up what what this morning will be I, I wanted to spend some time looking at with the help of some of these uh, these wonderful uh, commentaries um, some of the key words that Paul uses in this book um, and just how important understanding these words are uh, even in our our common language to, to get underneath that and get an understanding of the the original meaning uh, and then so the doctrines. There are some key doctrinal truths that Paul is amplifying all the way through this book, and it is supremely important to Paul. Um, so it should be supremely important to us as we read this this beautiful book of Romans, which is uh, in its easiest um, division. You can look at Romans 1 through the end of 11 as just pure theology um, or as as some would say the indicatives all the things God has done followed by Romans 12 on many see as application or the imperatives that which we should do as a result of all that God has done. And that's very much a proper and useful way to break this book apart. Um, we'll follow a little more of a um, more detailed outline as we get into that in a couple of weeks. But I just, you know, one of the things that came out of the Reformation age, and I don't want to get into this too much, but, but as most of you who have studied the Reformation age what was fascinating to me is over the course of a hundred years, the Lord lifted up a handful of men who did not know each other. They were not acquainted with each other. They were moved by the Holy Spirit in such an intense way to actually, in the midst of all their difficult circumstances of life, uh, if they needed to, and most of them did, teach themselves the original language, 
They didn't know Latin. They had to teach themselves. That's okay. Teach themselves Latin so that they could take out of the Latin Vulgate the truths of the scriptures. Because as they have looked back on the Latin Vulgate, which was the locked up word of God at that time, there were tens of thousands of translation errors in the Latin Vulgate. And the Lord lifted these men up to just, they had to know the word of God. And as we see with Luther and a number of these other men who suffered horribly, hunted like animals, uh, thrown in dungeons and frozen places, um, they wanted the scriptures to be available for us, for the common man. Because prior to that, the scriptures were locked into a dead language of Latin and then locked under lock and key for only the magisterium who would properly interpret the scriptures for the people. The people were not involved in it whatsoever. The mass of the Roman Catholic Church, particularly back in that days, the entire ceremony had the backs of the priests to the people because it was not about the worship of the people and the Lord. It was about the ceremony that was so secretly held by that system of religion, right? Paul just wanted that um, reality in his day shattered. So he wrote this entire beautiful book of Romans to methodically teach this Gentile, but we now know Gentile, Jewish, mature believer, immature believer, church, these beautiful truths in a very meticulous Pauline kind of way. So these words really matter, but I, one of the, one of the, the truths that came out of the Reformation, the five solas, sola scriptura, was the reality that scripture is the best teacher of scripture. Right, And we'll see a little bit of that in these various words and then doctrines from, from the Apostle Paul. But I first want to open us up in prayer. So, Father, we just thank you for this blessed time to gather as those who were once lost, But not just lost. We were darkened in our understanding. We were filled with ideologies that are an affront to you. We were living lives that were utterly running away from you. And as Paul so rightly concludes, we were hostile enemies of you. And you are the definer of hostile and enemy. Because we would never see ourselves that way. And that is the darkness. And yet as we will call to remembrance this morning in this beautiful reflection of your work on that cross through the Lord's table, You sent the light, not a light. You sent 
the light, the one who is the way and the truth. And there is a definite article there, and that definite article is you, Lord Jesus. And without this precious gift, there would be no way. And not one of us would find a way to you apart from being able to cast our hearts and our soul upon your beloved Son, Father, whom you gave us in the most extraordinary of ways. And so we just want to praise you for that. We want to praise you for our Lord, our Savior. And we just want to thank you for the truth that you have preserved so beautifully for us to hold tightly. And Lord, we just lift all these things up to your glory and to your praise and in your very precious name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So there, there's four words that I'm going to move through, um, hopefully not, not too slowly. We, we could certainly spend a lot of time on them. And the words are really sprinkled throughout, throughout this epistle the first word and, and the, one of the most important doctrines of this book is justification by faith. And we've seen a lot of that, right? But I want to stretch that out a little bit initially and then as we get into this, the second half of this study this morning. Um, but I, I think it's helpful if you will look for me for just a second at Revelations <clears throat> and go to Revelation. 12, verse 7, and, and uh, <clears throat> certainly there are a lot of just fascinating scenes in the book of Revelation, per particularly in this stretch from, from 7 on out through 18. But look at verse 7 for a minute. Now war arose in heaven. Now there's a concept we don't think much about, right? War in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now, we could spend a month of Sundays unpacking that one. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And we wonder why this place is such a mess, right? But look at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Praise be to God for that. And then I, this is what I want you to see. For the accuser 
of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. You ever think about that passage? You ever think about the unconfessed sin? The mistreatment of a spouse? The harsh words? What does this passage imply is going on? Right? Do you see that? You, you call one of them your righteous one? Did you see that? And you can just let every bit of your battle with sin <laughs> flash right through that scenario because he's accusing us as if it were our righteousness that allowed us to stand before God. And thanks be to God, it's not, right? But he is accusing, right? He is accusing. And this is why this word justification to understand it is so important. It is a legal forensic kind of word. It's used in Romans 4.25 and 5.18. It is uh, from the Greek verb uh, dikaio. I'm sure that's pronounced wrong. Meaning to acquit from the negative. Right? Mark stands before the Lord, the accuser. And I, do you think Satan is making up what Mark has done over the course of his life? Doesn't need to, does he? Right, you know I love you, Marky. <laughs> but he doesn't have to make it up, does he? He did this, he did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. And, and, and you hear that silence because there's no defense. This word justification says, but he believed on my son. And he placed his eternal future on what my son has done to pay the debt due. And therefore, though he is guilty as sin, I declare him not guilty. Praise God. That is at the heart of every one of our standing before God. If, in fact, the reason you are absolutely certain you will stand before God and hear those words. It will be because you know you could never do it. All you brought to that courtroom was your sin. And it was Christ who provided the righteousness. You know what I absolutely love? Like what you, you know, when you hear the secret prayer, mm -hmm. Mm -mm. The 
And that John 3, 17, 18, 19 says, and you were condemned already. It is a pre-existing state of your soul. <laughs> right. Bedrock truth, right? So the meaning is to, to acquit or to declare righteous. As we just described, it depicts this courtroom setting where God is presiding as the judge and determining the faithfulness of each person according to the law. Another word that's very important to Paul in this. The law is the moral conscience God has given us even as little kids we've all seen now our grandkids and kids when they were little bitty bitty toddlers and they were about to do something really nasty and they're looking at you <laughs> and they're looking at you because they know this isn't right but they know they're going to do it anyway but they don't want to get caught that is that moral conscience bound up in that little bitty thing that's got all that folly bound up in their heart, right? And then the written law of God and then has been uh, translated in many ways to the laws of man and the laws of the land, which interestingly is why the mark of the society we're headed towards and very much in today is a mark of what? lawlessness, blatant, gross, cold-hearted lawlessness. I saw an article that one of the little, little bitty girls in Nashville that got shot by that lady was the daughter of a pastor who was counseling her. That is hate and evil and wickedness at a level that just makes you want to cry out to God and say, how long, O oh Lord? Huh? Mercy. Let's talk about the law for a second. The law was not given to justify sinners, but to expose their sin which is why the church mixed with all kinds of believers and unbelievers hates and then declares that word legalism, right? How perfect, right? Oh, that church is legalistic. I'm free in Christ, and I am. I'm free from the judgment that I am due. And now if my heart has truly been brought to new life, we're like David, who delights in the law of God, who desires to walk in a manner worthy of this God, who would do so gracious a work through his son. And our heart's desire is to know the law and walk in the law and know that it is not the means by which we are justified, because Christ did that, but is the means by which we are now being conformed to the image of the very one who saved us, right? So why the law? The best place to go for why the law is Galatians 3, 23. If you'll go there, 
or I'll read for you. I'm actually going to start at verse 21 because it brings this idea of the law into the discussion. Paul says, is the law, Galatians 3, 21, then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, he says emphatically. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. There it is right there, right? The religious unbeliever hangs their eternal life on what? You've all witnessed uh, religious unbelievers. Hmm? That's right. And most of them are in religions that have locked it into some recipe, some lifelong method of works. So the net of it is, in its most simplistic form, is I just have to be a good person. Which is why so many hate, no, not one. Which is Paul's pulling in of all the Old Testament passages into Romans 3, 9 through 20. And he ends with, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may be accountable to God. Right? See, you see how Paul's weaving all this together for this Gentile church? Because the Gentiles at this time, certainly in the time of Christ, amazingly, kind of like where does Melchizedek come from? Right out of the blue, right? Here's this believer, king priest. You ever, you ever study Melchizedek and said, where did he come from? Right? The same spirit from where you came from. <laughs> right out of the pit of hell, right? For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's the moment that we were just talking about. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Right? And when it was revealed in your soul through the work of the Father and the Spirit regenerating your soul, the law became very real. If you have not come to Christ through the deep and suffocating conviction of the law, examine. Because that's where God brings us, right to the suffocating work of the law that says you are guilty as charged. And it is that point where he points you to the cross of his son and says, I have provided you a way out from under the law that has condemned you your whole life. Right? 
Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, just beautiful passage. So then, the law was our guardian, some translate it tutor, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And not by works is what Paul is getting at. The law was our tutor. And what, what is the proper answer of the law every time? Guilty, 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 guilty. Right? Hmm? Mm-hmm. Pure. Yeah, it requires, it demands purity. It's a beautiful point, right? Because Christ in every way, in every conceivable way, was just like us so that he could be our great high priest in this battle with sin. Because there was one way that he was not like us. He remained purely obedient to the Father. And if that was the mark of our Lord's life who redeemed us through that righteousness, then it makes perfect sense why we are called to walk in a manner worthy of him and to strive for the obedience that we've been called to and battle with, which is why Paul stretches out this doctrine in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Right? Reconciliation is the next word. Very, very important word. You see it in Romans 5.11. You see it in Romans 11.15. It is, it is a part of the work of propitiation, substitution. It is the substitutionary work of Christ in propitiation, that substitute, that we can be reconciled. But the question is, reconciled from what and to what? To whom are we being reconciled to is the question. And it's really an important answer. It is to God. Because Paul says very clearly in Romans 8, we are hostile enemies of God. We've made ourselves hostile enemies of God. And through the work of Christ, we are reconciled. Because God chooses to declare us not guilty because of our faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And therefore, he reconciles. And he doesn't just set aside what we are due. It was put on Christ on that cross so that he, they, our triune God, can be both just because someone paid the price and it was Christ and the justifier to give that righteousness to another who doesn't deserve it. And that's every believer that has ever come to faith through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit all through this beautiful triune work that goes on in the life of every new saint that's brought into the church. You look like you want to say something, brother, or just break out into a song. <laughs> Jason, what's precious doctrine is that 
ferociously, persistently and ferociously forever. That's why we love the old hymns, right? Jesus paid it all. all. Yes. Right. And that's why people say when he, when he died for everyone, I said, well, if he died for everyone, could everyone be redeemed? Hmm. And, and he paid their price. Why would they have to pay it themselves if he wasn't paid? And this is where careful Bible, thoughtful Bible study. And uh, put a placard over your study area that says, God is not a God of confusion. The scripture should never confuse us. It should clarify. If they're confusing, we've, we've got a mess in there, <laughs> right? That is, much of what we bring into our new life, remember the, the old man, excuse me, to the new man, right? We bring so much of that old man and his religion and his way of thinking right into the new life, which is why the group of men that I met with Saturday morning, we spent a great deal of time talking about the importance of putting off and the importance of just carefully letting the words of God fall and shatter everything that we disagree with, right? It's dangerous territory when we say, boy, that's, mm, no thanks. I kind of like it the way I like it, right? Although you can find a lot of company today, we know, right? Many of us have come out of those types of communities, right? But this word reconciliation basically means a change or exchange. And the exchange is a change from enmity, Romans 8, to what is uncomprehendable, if you really think about these doctrines of man. Friendship with God. Because what is the opposite of a hostile enemy? A dear friend, family, right? That's this reconciliation. It's why Paul just explodes at the beginning of Romans 5 and goes all the way to Romans 8 and says it again. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He couldn't get over that because Paul's a good example. What did Paul rely on his entire life as Saul? The law. How shocking those three days must have been for him to sit blind, unable to eat, sleep, or drink. All right. Three years in the desert? That's right. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. And think about those three years. In your own diligence, our diligence. This is, this is Saul. What can we be pretty sure about with Saul? He knew the Hebrew scriptures backwards and forwards. What took three years? And frankly, it was three years and then a number of years where Paul was really just serving the church before his real ministry kicked into high gear. So what, why did it take so long? How much did Paul need to put off? Put Christ into it and then put back on of the Old Testament. How the verse justification by faith that rings up out of the Old Testament must have just exploded in his heart as he was coming to understand that his entire life of religion lived out to the highest level was nothing but a pile of dung before God, right? That's why he loved. That's why, you know, you, you see Paul. You just see why he was though so methodical. Which brings you to the next word, hope. The Greek word, elpis, it's used seven times in this book of Romans, and it denotes confident expectation or anticipation and it is not wishful thinking. And I would say that the hope of this world is that, well, we've all said it, and we say it quite a lot, and rightfully so. Well, I hope, you know, I hope that Rick's on time for lunch, <laughs> but I don't really think he will be, right? I hope this world's going to get better. I hope that, and I hope that, right? This is not the hope of the Bible. Biblical hope, this is stuck with me, and I, I honestly don't know which old dead guy it came from. It is the certainty of future events. That's biblical hope. Because whenever that word is used, it is always Jesus, the hope that was set before him. He knew exactly what the cross was going to accomplish on behalf of his father, and he knew exactly the kingdom that it was going to bring about. And that was the hope that was set before him, right? Enduring all that he endured because he could see what God was doing with his kingdom. And though he was rejected by family, by his beloved Israel and by the world, his father was preparing through his death a family that you could never imagine from every tongue, tribe, and nation, right? And that is the hope that we have, that that is going to come to fruition as we talked about last week. So this hope, beautiful word, used seven different times. Um, look at Romans eight nineteen. One of my favorite, uh, uh, and obviously we we uh, heirs with Christ starts around Romans eight twelve. 
Um, but I'll just read from Romans 8, 18 to give us an idea of this hope. I'm going to read through verse 21. For I consider, Romans 8, 18, that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There it is. Just like Jesus. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Look outside that window and look at how the creation eagerly awaits the new life and the new kingdom because it's exploding with it right now in spring as Martin Lloyd-Jones has so beautifully pointed out. Right? But the creation goes through this cycle from this beautiful hope of spring to the withering heat of summer to the fall of fall to the cold barrenness of winter and then it comes right back again and it's going to keep doing that until this day which is when he says so rightly waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And the millennial reign is going to be just a step towards the eternal state. Because in a dramatic way. What's, what is reigning and ruling throughout this world right now under its ruler? Ever-increasing lawlessness. And that is the mark of that final society, is it not? Second Thessalonians chapter 2, just read it. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and it will be the utter mark of the end-time society that we live in corruption everywhere what is the mark of the millennial reign even though there are still unregenerate unbelievers regenerate in the flesh believers and glorified saints and christ and david and the resurrected saints righteousness will rule and lawlessness will be addressed like that so we will get a picture of what it was supposed to be like and then the eternal state is to come, and all sin is put away, finally and forever. So it's just these two grand steps on this grand staircase to eternity that God has purposed so that Christ could be the second Adam to overcome all that the first Adam failed to do. And he did it to his glory, but to us as the great beneficiaries of such a precious gift and that is in our that's our hope that's our hope right who would have thought a word study could be so wondrous look at uh, Romans 15 13 with me for just real quick you think this is in Paul's heart <laughs> May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, right? 
go to war with your doubts. Right? Go to war when your head or someone else says, did the scriptures really say that? Because that was right out of the pit of the garden, wasn't it? Go back to the scriptures. Get clear on exactly what they say. Have fellowship. Be the disciple, the learner that God has called us to be. Don't be shallow in the word of God because it is in the depths of the word of God that those hopes and promises just get mortared in and unshakable all the way to the old-timey saints that were burned at the stake while reciting the Psalms because <laughs> they knew this hope like we never could, right? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And what is his ministry in our regenerate lives? To teach us the word of God so that we may glorify Christ by being conformed to him through that word of God. And the more he teaches and the more we learn, the more he anchors us in this hope that is in Christ Jesus and becomes absolutely unshakable no matter what comes at you because it's going to come at you if it's not coming at you right now. <laughs> right? Okay, last word. My, how time flies. Law. Paul uses this term, nomos, nine times. A couple of things that Dr. MacArthur brought out in here that are helpful. Means an inward principle of action, right? This is what's interesting. Either good or evil. Okay? Do you know the, 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 the street gang has one of the strongest loyalties to one another you could imagine. But every bit of the values and principles they hold in that gang are their own laws, not God's laws. But they hold to them ferociously. It's a good example of what we're talking about here. It's one of the reasons why discipleship is so important. Right? To teach over time so that people can now have a moral conscience that is informed with God's truth, even as unbelievers. That is how the Holy Spirit restrains this society right now. And He is, by the way. We know that. Because as bad as it might seem, you can only imagine what it'll be like the day He goes to the entire society. It'll be nothing like it is now. We, we still can come together and worship freely. We still can walk down the street and be protected by the law, right? <laughs> when he goes like that, that restraint is removed. Lawlessness is utterly ruling. And everything you read in 2 Timothy 3 and 4 is now daily life. And Boy, we sure see pictures of it now, right now, don't we? 
So this idea of the law, an inward principle, either good or evil, best place to go, Jeremiah, you know, 17, 9, and 10, right? For the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it, says the Lord? That's our heart, right? The term also designates the standard for a person's life. That's why we train up our children the way we ought, right? And what's such a struggle about that is you can train up your child and then they'll get next to a child who's never been trained up in anything but the other and it sticks to them like flypaper, doesn't it? Right? That's this fallen nature and folly all bound up in their little heart. The Apostle Paul described three such laws, particularly in Romans 7 through 8. The law of sin, or we might say the law of sin and death, the law of the spirit of the life of Christ Jesus, which makes us free from the law of sin and death, followed by the law of of God. And we know the law of sin, right? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That is the law of sin. You could say the law of sin and death. There are two things for sure for every human being. They will sin and they will die unless God intervenes in the cases in which he's done that, right? And some of them died, were resurrected, and then had to die again. Can you imagine Lazarus? It's like, no, no. I don't want to come out, right? I like John 6.63, for it is the Spirit who gives life. This is this law of life, law of the Spirit. It's the regenerating work of the Spirit of God in a dead soul of a human being that brings them to a new life and now can see this light and be drawn to it and run to it and become sanctified, right? Which kind of brings you to this, what is this law of God, right? So let's go to Romans 7, verse 21, and we'll, we'll end here today and then pick up next week with the doctrines. But I thought this section was very helpful in kind of helping us see these laws at work, because obviously this is top of mind for the Apostle Paul. Romans 7, 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Amen? For I delight in the law of God. In my inner being, right? Right at the battle with sin and the flesh. At, this is what's going on. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Did God sovereignly leave that in your flesh? And to what end and what purpose? Because the answer is yes. Why did he leave it there? 
wouldn't we be much better witnesses if we just weren't sinners? Can you imagine? <laughs> You'd have to real go ahead, Nancy. Precisely. Do you all hear that? We'd be depending upon ourselves and not on, we would forget very quickly that it was, and what we would rationalize, and many, many, many do as they have heard the gospel in some form, is that, well, Christ got, he flipped the switch for me, but now it's mine, and we fall right into, even as believers, a works-based system of holding on to our salvation. And we're even formally taught in many places that you can lose your salvation, which promotes that precise religion. Exactly. Yeah. Remember the old man? Remember the, the one that's strapped to your face? A constant reminder of how much we need Christ. how on any day of our life we could be snapped up to that judgment room and be declared guilty for that day. If it weren't for what Christ has done, we would be condemned. Paul understood this in ways I don't think we can fully comprehend unless we really try to think like Paul and examine our own lives through that lens. Verse 24, Paul says it just flat as you can get. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death precisely where Nancy just told us. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Kind of strong words, isn't it? But it just tells you that battle's going to rage. But it also tells you what should our minds be full of? The scriptures that says that's a sin and it's lying right there and my flesh is moving towards it. And God says no. And that's a pretty good time to reflect on the cross and what it took to declare you not guilty of the sin you're now flirting with, right? Make it very personal. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, right? Make it very personal. Verse 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Beautiful words. That's why he says it right there. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Amen, right? Gives a whole deeper meaning to that section right there. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be, be fulfilled in us. And there's your call to sanctification. Right there. Why do we strive to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? It is right there. And 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, here it comes again, set their minds on things on the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Choose the Word of God. When you're locked in the battles with your spouse or with your children or with your neighbor, choose the Word of God. Have that in your mind. Because everything else will be some form of yourself. Right? Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And that is most certainly true for every unbeliever. But in a very temporal sense, how much of what we do is very unpleasing to God. Right? And that's the blessed work of the Holy Spirit, to continue to convict us of that sin in order that we might be growing in our sanctification, which we'll talk about next week. Okay? All right. Thank you, guys. <laughs>